At the NASA Neutral Buoyancy Lab, an NFL player turned astronaut jumps into the pool to start his descent. At 25 feet, he knows something's wrong as the pressure and pain builds up. With blood pouring from his ear, his team quickly pulls him to safety. Doctors start talking, but he only sees mouthing words. There's no sound. He's gone completely deaf, and his dream of going into space shattered forever. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. And his father said to me, my son is gone. There is nothing you can do to bring him back, but the biggest tragedy would be if we don't continue to fly in space to honor their legacy. In a world where instant gratification is the norm, this is a story about perseverance, loyalty, and sticking with your goals. Leland Melvin is the only person in human history to catch a pass in the National Football League and in space. But the road to fame was a very long one, riddled with setbacks and injury, which left him deaf in one ear. However, this former professional football player persevered and finally became a mission specialist on board the shuttle Atlantis and also worked on the International Space Station. He's one of only 556 people to have ever gone into space. This is Leland Melvin's incredible story. Okay, I'm going to just slate this and just get it in sync. All right, here we go. We're going to start with your story, and okay. we just want you to take us uh, back into the, into the middle of it. I'm training to do spacewalks, and to do that, we are submerged into a 5 million gallon pool that has a space station and a space shuttle underneath. And I have my suit on, I'm going, I'm being lowered into the water about 20 feet. And I tell the test director that the little styrofoam block that costs about $2 is missing from my helmet. That styrofoam block is called a Valsalva pad, which allows you to press your nose against it to clear your ears, because obviously you can't You reach can't your, reach in. Right, pinch. right, with this suit on. And I'm the kind of guy when I dive and when I do all my stuff, I, I need to clear. I'm that, I'm that kind of person. So we get down to 20 feet and from that point on, I tell the test director to turn the volume up in the headset because I hear nothing but like garbled voices. And after that, I hear nothing but static. And so they take me out of the pool. They pop my helmet off. The doctor starts walking towards me and he's speaking to me, but I can't hear anything he's saying. So I think he's, I'm like, why are you playing with me? This is kind of a serious thing, you know? And he gets closer to me and he touches my right ear and he pulls his finger back and the, a river of blood just streams down the side of my face. I am completely deaf. And no one knew what had happened. They rushed me to the hospital. The surgeons, ear, nose, and throat uh, specialist from Houston Medical Center, he operated, went in, looked at my oval and circular windows, couldn't find anything wrong. And when I woke up from the anesthesia, I saw three doctors looking at me with this face of despair. And they said, we don't know what happened to you. Well, they didn't say that. They actually wrote it on a legal pad. Because you could I not couldn't hear. hear. And, and Leland, I'm going to hold you there, and we're going to yeah. finish okay. this, this story later. Okay. But that, that just gives us a setup for okay. a life that you've had where you have faced some pretty big challenges, right. that being one of them. 
Mm-hmm. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of the challenges you've faced in life? I mean, it, it, it broadens your tolerance for whether it's pain or whether it's adversity. You get this increased bandwidth mm. of capacity to deal with stuff. And when I was five years old, I was, I was uh, raped by some, some people in my, in my neighborhood. And, you know, most people will go to their parents and tell them what happened, but I could not tell my dad because my dad would have killed those guys. Mm. And so I was holding that in so that I would protect my family. And, you know, people say, well, how did you deal with it? And I said, I, I would never let those guys keep me from rising. I continued to thrive. I tried to, you know, do the best that I could in sports and academics and everything just to to be the best that I could. And I and I didn't share anything about that until I wrote my book after my, my dad had passed because I still thought... You didn't with, want to hurt him? No, I didn't want to be without a father. Yeah. Because I had friends without, without dads. And that so, was really... That was... I mean, so many young men don't have their fathers. Oh, yeah. yeah and you yeah. figured that out as such a young Because age. he would he would have... I mean, you know, he taught me everything and I was kind of his light, you know, and... I knew that he would have probably killed them and he would have been in jail. I mean, and he would have been gone from the family. So I just said, nope, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to do what I have to do. And like I said. That's an incredible choice to make as a a young boy. Yeah. Really. uh, But it, it worked out. Do you believe in the idea that some people say hardship, adversity, it creates strength in 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 most situations that the strongest people are the people that who have been through the most in life i mean not that we wish hardship on anybody but that sort of tough love or a a tough upbringing sometimes does instill this drive and this power to do big things in life i'm a material scientist so i know that when you work hard and metal by hitting it under fire it strengthens it 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 aligns the grain boundaries and makes it a strong great piece analogy of steel. yeah and so you know from knowing about that and knowing about how as an athlete you know training to perform at a high level you know the more muscle fiber you break down the more it overlaps and gets bigger and stronger and so i do believe that i do believe the work hardening does increase your tolerance and your strength and your your resolve. I mean, think about slavery. Think about people that were in a very, very bad situation, but they didn't, you know, they didn't give up hope. Uh, Harriet Tubman, you know, this kid was saying, well, I can't find space. I'm like, well, Harriet Tubman, she, she freed slaves from the South, took them to the North, and then came back knowing that she would be, you know, diced up or hung or whatever if she were caught but there was a greater cause it was a greater purpose i think for her life to help this liberation and this freedom reading about you leland i see you draw a lot of strength from 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 other african-american people role models in particular arthur ash somebody who went through unbelievable hardship to prove that he deserved to be on a world stage as a as a tennis player do you think again that that is one of the things that made Arthur Ashe have that edge as a as a winner, as somebody who just silently right. went about his way and won? Well, Doctor Rowan Johnson, who was a, the medical doctor who integrated the hospital I was born in, mm-hmm. um, had that same resolve, and he instilled that in both 
Arthur and Althea, telling them that when you hit the ball in the court, you have to hit it two inches inside the line. So no one can say that me? was out. Yeah, he trained them to, if if you were hitting it in the corner, yeah. it was two by two that you had to hit it in into the court. So, so it was so clearly in that there oh, yeah. was going to be no, no, no question. No one could ever tell you that it was not on the line. Are you kidding out. me? I've never That's heard that trained. story before. And I played on the court. We we rebuilt the court that Arthur and Althea played on in Lynchburg, which was a home five blocks down the street from where I grew up in Lynchburg. And I was able to play on that court like a month ago where Arthur played and Althea played. I was just, what was that like? Because you, you wanted to be him at one point, right? Yeah, like you, yeah. you wanted I to still be... do. I love this quote of yours. You say, uh, with, with regards to Arthur Ashe, you said, I saw someone who looked like me and I was told he had great character discipline and all those things you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. how important is it for people whether they're maybe they're gay or you know they're whatever they're whatever it is right, right. how important is that to 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 see those people it, how powerful is that you know for for minorities to see somebody who is like them right. represented right you know it's funny when you when you look at people that have risen and done great things. I think about Ron McNair, who was one of the first black um, astronauts. He, he perished in the Challenger accident. But he saw Nichelle Nichols on television on this crazy, wacky show called Star Trek that Gene Roddenberry brought on to showcase the diversity of people in the 60s, in the mid-60s. I was born in 64. So when that show started, you know, we had the first interracial kiss with him and Kirk kissing. But anyway, I mean, I think, you know, for me, and when Neil and Buzz walked to the moon in 69, I didn't see someone who looked like me. People thought, are you going to fly in space? Are you going to be an astronaut? I'm like, no, I'm going to be Arthur Ashe because that was so present to me that, you know, you could do that. And in my neighborhood, most of the African-Americans were school teachers. And so that was a path. Most people say, well, I'll be a school teacher because I know how to do that. I know mm-hmm. what that path looks like. Most kids don't know what it takes to become an astronaut. They don't know, well, you go to school in science or engineering. You go do this, you go do that. No one has that path in front of them, that journey. And unless you're really inquisitive and you go out and look at people's journeys that don't look like you, then, you know, a lot of people don't do that. At least in my neighborhood, they did not do that. And in, in, in general, has... Has the program been good at providing opportunity for minorities and for people who are different? I mean, has there been a? I'm sure it's changed a lot, right? Because I, what was the the great the fantastic film that was out most recently about the the woman? Uh, oh, Hidden Figures with Katherine Fig- Johnson. Yeah, she turns 100 next next month. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Didn't you love that movie? I love. Well, I love the movie. But also, I went. I worked at NASA Langley, where yeah. she was, and I was constantly gleaning off of her wisdom, you know, and trying mm-hmm. to take nuggets from her. Um, but yeah, it, it was so empowering that young girls went out and raised money to send other girls to the movie theater to see that. And movie. there was a really cool thing that happened, right? They came to. There was some event that they came to, where they were honored uh, recently, right? Where Catherine? NASA. Where, where NASA took the time to honor these these women, the, oh, all yeah. the women who were involved in this space program, and to right. finally say, you know what, right. we we acknowledge what contributions you you made to both science and also to the space program. Well, the sad thing was, you know, astronauts. We we have something called the Silver Snoopy Award, yes, and we give it to people that have done heroic and great things to keep us safe in space. 
and she had never been given a silver Snoopy award. And so I retroact, I took my astronaut pin off, pinned her at this event, and then I called NASA headquarters to say, hey, how can we retroactively give her a silver Snoopy? And they finally did. I took my pin back and said, hey, you got your Snoopy. Looking good for you. <laughs> it must have felt really good. It did feel good. It did feel good. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your your life is is just such a uh, an interesting one. I, I I love the story about your dad and and the bread van and uh, I mean uh, <laughs> I, I clearly uh, you know there's a favorite quote of mine. It's uh, from Sir Ernest Rutherford who was part of splitting the atom and he uh-huh. said you know we 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 didn't have money so we had to think. It's I'm right. paraphrasing a wee bit, but right. essentially. They didn't have a lot of money to split the atom, so they right. really had to think. You have more time than money. Yeah, and think. it sounds like yeah. your dad was one of those guys with like, hey, I, I can't necessarily go buy a camper van, right. but I can get a bread truck, and then exactly. you guys figure out how to turn the bread truck into a camper van. A $500 bread truck. It it was just as good as any Winnebago RV for twenty five thousand. Not when it turned up though, was it? No, no, no. It was no. a bread truck. What was it? I mean, how do you transform a bread truck into a camper van? So this bread truck, which is gutted, comes home and we build bunk beds in it that flip down. We build a sofa. We plumb a propane tank to a Coleman stove. We, it, I mean, and my mother was a home economics teacher, so she was making curtains and designing the cushions for the sofa and our and our flip down bunk beds. It was incredible. And we as soon as we finished it, I still didn't believe it was a, a camper because it still said Marita bread and rolls on the side. Well that's kind of a giveaway, yeah. Or, you know, it's a bread <laughs> truck. But we painted it and then we went on vacation. And it was amazing. Oh, you painted it off before you went on vacation. Yes, yes, oh, yes. okay. You can't roll down yeah. the road in a red yeah. truck and What's go it? camping. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, Dad, no, I'm not going. In. I'm not no. going. <laughs> they wouldn't let you in the campground. Right, no, you're right. not allowed to come. They think you're selling bread or the something. The delivery people aren't allowed during camping hours. Yeah. So your parents, when you when you look back on your, your, your time with your parents, how would you describe them? Were they, were they ever... Uh, Maybe were they encouraging, or were, did they sometimes hear some of the dreams that you have and go, and kind of go, listen, you know, check yourself. You're not going to be Arthur Ashe. Or how were they to you when you shared your dreams with them? Well, I I didn't really, I didn't. Okay, so dreaming of what I wanted to be was more of an internal thing. Mm. I never really went out and said, hey, Dad, I want to be Arthur Ashe, or hey, I want to do this, or hey, I want to be a chemist because I blew up the living room with my your, the age-inappropriate non-OSHA certified chemistry set, Mom, you gave me. <laughs> I, did you do that? I did, oh, yes. It was the most beautiful Thank thing. God your mother was into home economics and she could make some new curtains. Well, it was the rug that got burned up. So okay. She wasn't, a, she wasn't making rugs. <laughs> but, you know, I, um, I just... It's like I would I would grasp these skills, yeah, these different things, whether it's sports or academics or whatever, and then it's like the the career kind of materialized along my journey. Yeah, it's like oh I can do that I know how to do that I can do that. And have you always been that person? You've always had that confidence, that inner confidence, like I can do that. That's a good, interesting question. Um, my parents, my parents always told me that I could do anything. So they were believers. Yeah. They were po- a positive influence. Right. Yeah. And the two books that my mother read to me every, every night were The Little Engine That Could, Wiley yep. Piper's... Love that I story. I think I can, I think I can. Pulling yeah. the big engine I know I can, I know I can. Right. And Curious George. Oh, I love that. The man in the yellow, yellow hat. hat. So I always had a man or woman with a yellow hat that supported me no matter where I was going, what I was doing. 
And isn't that the best story ever? Oh, curious George. He was curious. He was an astronaut. Yes. He did everything, right? I love that relationship between the two of them. You know, that was the thing. And the thing was, you always knew the ending of the story, but when you were reading it, you didn't know what was going to happen. It's like you totally, totally bought into that. So the the tennis thing didn't work out so well for you, Leland. I still play to this day. Right. But what I mean is you you did not become Arthur Ashe version two. But the football thing, you clearly had some serious talent in the football department. So when did you figure that out? Like, how was it? How soon was it that, like, man, I can? Well, I was a wide receiver on a running team mm. in high school, so that meant I blocked a lot. There was no future for me as a wide receiver because I didn't, I didn't have the stats. I wasn't a blue chipper. But What's a one, blue chipper? A blue chipper is someone who's who's knows that they're going to go to one of the top universities oh, okay. on a scholarship, right? And so the scouts come and look at them because they have all the stats. I didn't yeah. have any, so. There was a coach from Richmond who watched me play a homecoming game where I dropped a touchdown pass in the end zone. Ooh! And I walked, ran to the sideline, ready to be sit, you know, sat on the bench, sit, sit, you know, thrown on the bench. And my coach grabbed me by the face mask, looked me in the eyes, and I said, "I believe in you. Go back out there, run the same play, and catch the ball." And I didn't want to go. I was embarrassed. My friends were there, my family was there, homecoming game. So I get out there, we run the same play, the perfect spiral thrown in the end zone, I catch it. We win the game. Unbeknownst to me, there was a college scout from the University of Richmond looking to see if I could play for the Spiders. He saw me the second time in the end zone. He walked out the first time I dropped the ball. The second time he saw me in the end zone, like doing a little dance. And he said, this guy failed. He recovered. Maybe he can play for us. One catch resulted in a $180,000 scholarship to the University of Richmond. That catch showed me a lot about being in the right place at the right time, but also not giving up. And so even if you fail at something, you keep going, you keep going. I but what I think it also speaks to is the importance of good influences in your life. That right. coach who grabbed you by the face mask right. and said, looked you in the eye and said, get back out there. Because right. he saw something in you. And sometimes as much Great talent as we have, yeah. we need those people in our lives. The man we? in the yellow hat. Yeah, the man in the yellow hat. We need that that guidance and that's the sad part to me of you spoke before about your father those kids who are growing up without those important influences Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what do you say to those kids who maybe don't have the dad that you had who's going to bring home the bread truck and say hey let's make this transform this into what we want african proverb says it takes a village to raise a child we find a surrogate for those men that aren't there we as a community you know, reach our hands out to pick them up and help them and be those fathers and grandfathers and people that they don't have in their life and show them love and show them direction and show them hope. And right now, though, Leland, there's that's really missing. You know, that the idea of the village feel like we're becoming more and more. Uh, there are more and more. There's more and more division with people. Right. There's more divisiveness. There's more about us and them. And right. the tribes are. Assembly fragmented their own little tri- yeah tribalism yeah. happening and it how so, so I mean sometimes I think people they give up hope and just, you know right now we need hope more than ever yeah I you know I was uh, I was incapacitated for a while when all of this negativity came down from some of these political things that have happened and I realized that I cannot continue to take in all of this negativity Mm. so then i started on instagram and my social feeds pushing out positivity Mm. which helped me become more positive 
and it helped infect other people. People are like, hey, this is a great post today. Thank you. This reminds me of what mm. things are supposed to be like, yeah. not how they are. And, you know, you you smile, you stay positive, even through adversity. I mean, Harriet Tubman was probably smiling at points when she was liberating people from the Deep South yeah. and had this sense of accomplishment. So even under really dire circumstances and really atrocious situations, you can still rise. I say that to my daughter a lot. I say, you got to practice optimism and, and yeah. positivity. Yeah. And especially being young, the more you practice it, you put your 10,000 hours into being an optimist, you'll right. be a good optimist. Right, right, right. <laughs> and conversely, the other way, if exactly. you're a pessimist, you can become very good at, exactly. at, at that. Um, so so then you leave, you go from high school and you go to college. Right. And, and tell us about your education there. What, what did you study? In? So because my mother had already you know, showed me that I could blow things up as a chemist. I said, well, I'm going to be a chemistry major. You're obviously very good at it. Already done it. And you go on and you, and you do your master's. Mm-hmm. And what did you do your master's in? Before my master's, I, I got drafted at the Detroit Lions. To play oh, football. so that happened before. Okay. Yeah, so I went to Detroit. Um, I graduated from Richmond in chemistry. Went to Detroit. Um, was there. Pulled a hamstring in training camp. And then I came home. Uh, Dallas signed me for the next season of the Cowboys. And so then I started graduate school at University of Virginia. Dallas? Wow. Dallas Cowboys, yeah. yeah. And then I, when I moved to Dallas, I'm still taking courses. So catching footballs by day for America's team at night, I'm watching material science engineering, VHS, video cassette, recorded tapes. And I, I'm taking it it would be hard to be dating and to have a social life with this kind of lifestyle. A little crazy. But, um, but then I, my football career ended when Danny White, the quarterback at the time, was throwing and threw me a pass that I went after and I pulled my leg again. So went back to grad school full time and then went to work for NASA. Whatever NFL former NFL player does, right? Well most most <laughs> NFL players do go on to NASA. I mean sort of a True. it's a natural progression. It is. It yeah. is. Well I mean I had my master's in material science engineering. I went, yes. I went to work for NASA as a research scientist. And then a friend said, Hey Leland, you'd be a great astronaut. And I just laughed at him. I'm like, yeah right. Yeah, I want to read that to you because um yeah, so 19, 1997 I'm reading here, and it says, uh, yeah, a friend said you'd be a great a- astronaut, and you said, what are you talking about? Never thought of myself as having the right stuff, right, right. Uh, and and for the reason that the people before me didn't look like you. Like, you weren't used to seeing, well, right. you hadn't seen this before, right? right? And another right. friend was accepted, and I thought, hey, if NASA is letting knuckleheads like my friend, right. and you were like, hey, if that smart knucklehead can yeah, do it, yeah. then... Hey, I'm going from the NFL and I'm going to NASA. Right, right. So, uh, so I applied the next selection and I got in. It was 2,500 people that applied for th- 25 spots, and I got one of those spots. Man, that was crazy. What was that like? Was that a call? Was it an email? What was, I, I guess it wouldn't have been an email. It was 1997, right? So, yeah. so what was that? Was it, it was a call from the head of the astronaut office. Was, did the man have a yellow hat? He probably did. Yeah, okay. I didn't see it, though, because we were in video so, conference. So tell us, where were you? I'm, I'm interested. So, in- so I was, I, we had just finished building this optical fiber laboratory yeah. for making fiber sensors. As you do. Yeah. As, as, you, as do you do. When you get out of the NFL, right? Yeah. And so we had just made our first sensor with this eczema laser, fiber optic, two-story con- monstrosity of this scientific, you know, place. And, and I get this phone call. And so I take it up in my office, and I'm like, you know, and the phone dies. And I'm like, 
well, that was from Houston. So the guy calls me. Houston's back. calling, and Houston's we do calling, not right. have a problem. Right. We have something good to tell you. <laughs> and so the second time, there was some disc, something happens. And the third time he calls me, he says, Leland, um, how you doing? And that's usually the let you down. You yeah, know? that's like, how you doing? Because I need to prepare you right, for something right. bad. <laughs> but he says, how you doing? And just want to see if you are willing to come be in the astronaut program. Oh. And he said, and you can't tell anybody. And I'm like, oh, okay, I won't tell anybody. Mom, I got in the astronaut. <laughs> but uh, that was. She that must was, have cried. Come on. She didn't cry. She didn't cry. Your I dad think my cried. dad did. <laughs> Man, if my daughter told me she was going to be an astronaut, I'd be crying. I'd be like, how cool is that? Yeah, it was too funny. Too That's funny. a long way from the bread truck. You know what yeah, I'm saying? But the bread truck prepped me. So, Lena, let's go back now to the, to the story. So, you you were telling us that the doctor puts his hand up to your ear and he shows you the blood and it's real. You mm-hmm. cannot hear. Right. And you're so excited from going from the NFL to NASA, and now you're faced with yet another challenge, another right. big challenge, right. life changing challenge. Right. Right. I mean, I I'm in the hospital and I have uh, you know coming out of this surgery. All my friends are around me. People are writing me these notes and don't give up, believe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I can't hear a bomb drop. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm laying there, and about three weeks later, my hearing starts to slowly come back in my right ear. I'm completely deaf in this ear, pretty much. I get some low frequency. But um, I go home. I'm, I'm recovering. My brain is now starting to rewire itself to hear for this right ear. And I feel nothing but ice picks going through the side of my head when the, that, the pain is that bad the pain from the air conditioner handlers in houston kicking on every five minutes because it's always hot in houston right yeah and so i'm laying in bed with earplugs and noise canceling headsets to block out this pain i think that was one of the things that gave me a much higher threshold for pain because when your brain is like just getting slammed with noise well just your the idea that you're talking about what it would feel like to be poked in the ear with right. an ice pick not in the ear, in the brain. In the brain. It's like going through my head. Oh. And I just feel this sharp pain. And eventually that subsides, and eventually I get this hearing back, and I start driving and start doing things and getting reincorporated back into society. But that was a that was a very painful process. I'm just trying to think of what those three weeks were like, waiting that out. Because th- at that point, you've got no, you've got no guarantee that anything is coming back did well, you they, well they told me that i would never fly first of all i mean they kind so, of wrote, okay you're uh, not going to fly so what am i going to do as an a, a partially deaf astronaut what is going to be my function what's going to be my role what will my job function you know and and uh, i went to work in education at nasa nasa headquarters and that's when the columbia accident happened and i had to go and console the parents david brown his parents uh lived near washington dc and to try to give them some hope. And his father said to me, my son is gone. There's nothing you can do to bring him back, but the biggest tragedy would be if we don't continue to fly in space to honor their legacy. And I'm not flying because I'm medically disqualified. And so we fly to the different memorial services around the country. And the chief of all the flight surgeons is sitting beside me on every takeoff and landing. And he's taking notes. And he watches me clear my ears because now I can clear my ears. And he signs me a waiver to fly in space when I'm ready to transition back from D.C. to Houston. 
and um, and that's again another man in the yellow hat and someone who believed in me when I didn't necessarily believe in myself were you frightened I mean just fly yeah did, did did you ever have any doubt I mean considering what you had witnessed what you were so close to right was there fear was there this sense of obligation there wasn't fear because when he when his David's father said we must honor their legacy mm. that just drove into me like a not a stake but it was like something that it was my new mission yeah in life to honor that legacy and and if I couldn't fly I was going to do it through education by telling kids about David and the crew and you know just getting them ready to go find space or something to honor the legacy but when I got the chance I'm sitting in the vehicle three and a half hours before launch million pounds of thrust you know three two one liftoff we're shaking we're rattling and I'm thinking honor the legacy I've got to be perfect I've got to flip all the switches right I got to make the right calls and we get to space and I'm looking out the window and I'm and I'm thinking we're honoring that legacy David's father was he able to witness your trip was he able to David's father he was not at my shuttle launch I think he had passed how long after the man with the yellow hat decided he was going to give you a pass to go up before you then eventually got your first seat it was 2003 when I got the waiver to fly and I didn't fly until 2008 so it was five years after the the get out of jail free card from the man of the yellow hat and what is a what do you do for five years like well we're, we're constantly training so you're, yeah so I was doing robotics training because I knew that I would he he in the waiver he said that I could not do spacewalk training so I could not get back in the pool and do a I could never do a spacewalk I couldn't get back in the jets and fly t-38 so those two things I could not do. What about the the KC one thirty five one thirty five, the one that does the parabolic yeah, dips? I didn't I didn't go back in there either. Okay. Why, why put myself in an environment that could potentially harm me and take get me away ready, the opportunity? Yeah, get me ready for space. And if something happens in the shuttle due to pressure, it's going to affect everyone. That that was the rationale from the doctor. And I wanted to read this other quote from you. I really like this. You said, "I want everyone." to have the chance to see Earth from space from this vantage point. When you go around the world every 90 minutes, going around 17,500 miles an hour, it fundamentally changes you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It shows you that we're all connected. There isn't a, not that I've met lots of astronauts, but those people who I have met or seen interviewed, who have seen the Earth and the thin blue line around the Earth, every single one of them come back with this sentiment right and i'm just curious like how quickly you you made that assessment like as soon as you got up there you were like oh i have clarity i can see the i mean was it was it instantaneous it was after i did the my primary task which was to install the columbus laboratory two billion dollar laboratory with the robotic arm to the space station once i did that peggy whitson the first female commander invited us to have dinner in the Russian segment. And she said, you guys bring the rehydrated vegetables, we'll have the meat. We float over <laughs> with the vegetables. Sounds so appealing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rehydrated vegetables, <laughs> yeah. meat, you know. Oh, great. So we get there, and the 
you can smell this food cooking or heating up. And Peggy's there, Yuri's there. We have, we're going around the planet every 90 minutes. We have, uh, we're having this meal breaking bread with people we used to fight against, Russians and Germans. And Sade Smooth Operator's playing on the speakers. What was it? Sade, oh, Smooth Sade. Operator. Smooth Operator. Are we going to have to pay a copyright? <laughs> smooth not, not Operator. Not today, because it was in space. Yeah. Okay, oh, okay. But it was surreal, and that's when I had this perspective shift. Yeah. I was with people we used to fight against. The first female commander, African-American, Asian-American, French and German. I mean... This is like a Benetton commercial, you know? <laughs> Except you're a little... Without little. the sweater. <laughs> yeah, without the sweater. <laughs> and so uh, that's when I got the shift. Yeah. And, uh, and flying over Afghanistan, looking at the beauty of this place, knowing what's going on down there. You know, Lebanon. Israel, all these places of unrest, but just so beautiful. The Mediterranean and the Nile. The you Red don't sea. see the borders, do you? You don't see the borders and you don't see the fighting. It's just this yeah. beautiful landscape. And it, it must plague on your mind, though, too, when you look down and you think and, or that you know that there is right. fighting. Right. Then right. that must be very confusing. Right. Because it, it, when you stand back from it and you have that view... That's why like, more people need to go to space and get a perspective shift or hear the stories about space, yeah. working with people that we used to fight against. And I think that's one of my missions now is to spread these messages of hope and belief in working together as one race the human race yeah which yeah which is so important particularly right now especially right now especially right now i feel you know we i felt like we were progressing we were going somewhere and 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 i feel like right now we're well to use a a space term we're orbiting like we're just right. stationary or something we're not moving forward right now in the way that we should be right we're no. not progressing in some ways that right i never thought we'd be having some of the conversations we're having but you know you have to pull back the strength from sourcing your strength from times that were even worse mm. and know that people did get through that and we will get through this it's a cycle right yeah and we have to make sure that we have the right people to take the place so that it rises in a better way from here. Uh, you are such a, an inspiration. I'm wondering if you wear a yellow hat for anybody else in particular. Like, are there people that you're mentoring, for instance, or uh, maybe you do it by talking to schools? I don't know. But do you now see yourself as a man in a yellow hat? I wrote a book uh, called Chasing Space that has a young reader's edition. I get email messages from teachers to say all my kids are reading this and there's a little boy named RJ who doesn't read on level we were helping him read it but once he started reading it and found out that you played football and you did this and that he wants to read more and he's turning it around so those messages of of hope from just reading the book or with the website or whatever and then I then I respond back to the teachers and I try to get to the kids and so I'm trying to do it in a way that's sustainable and looking at other ways to do it that can be even more more broad-reaching another great quote you've got lots of great quotes she said i think my purpose and passion is to help inspire that next generation of explorers and i truly think that that's my calling just based on some of the things that have happened in in my life right Right. and and now you're living it i'm trying to live it as much as i can i love that so much um and look you've got so much more living to do um what do you want to do with your time here on earth this precious time that we have on earth 
Have you got like anything you want to share with us? Or are are these things you're keeping to yourself because you want to just do them? I'm working on a graphic novel uh, that, again, can have reach Mm -hmm. and then maybe do things where you can let the kids get experiential, you know, hands-on experiential activities of building and creating things that can go to Mars or go on the space station or, or go other places and let them know that they can solve problems. So I'm working with some, some companies to, to do that. and uh, You're also working on Mars, the series with yes, National Geographic. Yes. Pretty incredible show. And, you know, when I, when I look at what, what they've done with Mars and I think about me going to space with the first female commander and we have, you know, we have Hana who is the commander with empathy and the first you know, yes. Asian female commander who is running things on Mars. That lets me know that we are doing the right thing. And We're going in the right direction. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. I love that. Um, I was wondering if I could just end with a couple of questions. Sure. Uh, clearly, you have a love of, of family. You have a love of people. I'm, I'm interested if you were to take a trip, a road trip across America, and you could take... I'm planning that now, actually. Is that right? <laughs> Well, imagine you could take three people from the past oh. or currently living. You could t- choose whoever you wanted to go in that car with you on that trip. Could be anybody three from any people. time and period, in mm. any period in time. I would take my dad. He would yeah. come back. We'd be going somewhere. Not a bread truck. It's a Sprinter van converted pretty cool with dog kennels and things. But Got it. Dad would go... Um, probably would take Harriet Tubman because I would want to take her I want to drive the journeys and paths that she took yeah. to liberate people and then get a commentary slavery. along the way yes yeah yes and then record it yes. as a podcast oh yeah we have a podcast yeah we yeah. do it here you know yeah and then uh that's good I got to think about the third person but those two I know I, I think Arthur would probably join you Arthur would go you yeah. could bring tennis rackets, and then every now and again, you stop off at a court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you Arthur know? would be great, actually. Right? Because he would inspire so many kids. Yeah. And teach so many kids how to play with empathy and character and intellect. And last question, Leland. Uh, your last day on Earth, if you knew you had your last day on Earth tomorrow, mm-hmm. what would you do with your last day? I'd probably get a lot of kids in a, in a stadium. And I would tell them a story about mm. not giving up and believing in yourself and try to reach as many of them as possible, maybe record it too. And, and, and then before I left the planet, I would try to high-five all those kids to wow. touch them yeah, and to let them smell me and feel me and grab and say, you can do this. Believe in yourself. I did. Leland, you are a remarkable human being. Thanks, brother. It's been uh, a real pleasure spending Likewise. Just, a little, for just a little time with you. and this happen. You know? uh, thank you for sharing your stories. And thanks for being now the man in the yellow hat. <laughs> we all I think, are. I think you need to write a book. The man in the yellow hat. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you're in a yellow hat. And you just do an updated version. Hmm. Write your own version. Get Instead it out of there. chasing space, it's chasing the man in the yellow hat. Chasing the man in the yellow hat. Thank or you. following, maybe. Yeah. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it.